So as I said, um, I couldn't leave the Gospel of John. I wasn't ready to leave the Gospel of John. I want to look a little bit longer at Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. Maybe the most famous book of the Bible, uh, simply because it presents Jesus in such a powerful way. You heard Josh read those first 18 verses of chapter 1. It's like, wow. I mean, you know, this is the book that I tell new Christians who are interested in learning about um, Jesus. This is what I say. Read John. And then, to understand what it means to follow Jesus, read 1 John. So, uh, you, you obviously... Share that with anyone that's interested in understanding more about Christ. Read John. And then to understand what it means to actually walk as a disciple, read 1 John. But I want to start this way tonight. What if, what if one day you just found yourself in consciousness? What if? What if you just found yourself in consciousness? What if you just suddenly realized you're here. Now, this did happen to you. You probably don't remember when it happened to you. I was trying to remember my first memory. I was three years old. It's hard to remember exactly when I realized I'm here and I don't know why I'm here. How did I get here? Why am I here? What am I doing here? Right? Some of you may remember that moment. I doubt that you do. Um... What if you were just a kid and you were ignorant and you were clueless about exactly why you're here, why you're conscious? You know, all you know to do is watch others and you mimic what they do. Isn't this pretty much human nature? I just mimic what I see. I mimic what I hear. This is what we do as children. That's about as deep as it gets for most of us as we move into our teens and even into a young adulthood. We, we're, lest we've been raised with good godly parents, we're pretty much clueless. We pretty much are. We really don't understand what the deal is. What if you took almost everything, if not everything, in your life for granted every day. What if you did that? What if you took every good thing in your life today for granted? And you did it, and you're going to do it again tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that. I just take everything for granted. I believe the universe owes me. The universe owes me, you know, a healthy body and a good mind and five senses. The universe owes me this. I'm not thankful to anybody for it. I woke up with it one day. I, I found myself in consciousness and I had these things and I assumed it was owed to me. What if that's how you thought? What if that's what you were about? What if sometimes you genuinely sense the miraculous of everything that's around you, including yourself, yeah, I can think, I can dream, I can hope, I can love, I can create. You know, as I've shared with you before, you know, one guy I was reading recently, he was a scientist, he said the five senses are the five wonders of the world. 
And you just take them for granted every day. I guess it was owed to me because here I am. And I have them. What if, in spite of all the good and pleasurable things in your life, you are never satisfied, you are never at peace, and in fact, you're a little bit angry because you don't have more? What if that's who you were? No, what about this? What if no matter what you did, what you accomplished, or what you acquired, it was never enough? Ever. It was never enough. What if there was this huge conflict between the ought, the conscience inside you, and the way you lived, right? What if there was always guilt? What if you knew what was right, but you just didn't do what was right? And again, what about the guilt that comes with that? What if... In your very alone moments, you just always felt empty. Always. You always felt empty. What if you knew you needed to change, that you needed help, that there had to be more to life, that you're broken beyond fixing? What if you realized that? What if you came to realize that you were more dead than... You are alive. What if you came to see that everything really must be about God? What if you finally came to that place? You're a thinking person, right? You're a thinking person. Non-thinking persons never arrive at this place. But you're a thinking person. There has to be an adequate first cause. And surely, I'm responsible to Him in some way. I don't understand it all. But surely I must be responsible to the One who created me. There has to be an adequate first cause. Reason demands it. Created order demands it. You know, I say it all the time. You might be a liar, but you're not an atheist. There are no true atheists. (laughs) We all know Romans chapter 1. So what what if you realized you had a big God problem? What if all of what I just said is true of you? Then you need the Gospel of John. The best gift God has ever reserved for you is the Gospel of John. I would say this to all of you who are born-again believers. You should know well the Gospel of John. You should know it very well. This is Jesus Christ, whom you claim to know, love, and follow, you, should be, you need to be able to share the Gospel of John with the people in your orbit. Not with vague generalities, but, you know, with the truth. I'm not talking about memorizing the book, but you should know the, the scope and sweep of what's being said about Him. You know, I like to say that Jesus is the answer to every serious question you have. Which, of course, means you need to know the Gospel of John. So, as I said earlier, I just want to take one more Sunday and spend a few minutes looking at Him in the Gospel of John. It's not that you can't see Jesus all over the Bible. 
It's not that that's not true and that we're going, going to move on next week to some other message from the Bible. But there's just something, for me, I'll share it with you, there's just something beautiful about this Gospel. There's something alluring about it. There's something wonderful about it. So I was not able to, in good conscience, leave. Because all of the what-ifs I opened with are true of each one of us. If not now, it was true of us in the past. All of that was true. You needed a Savior. And the Gospel of John holds Him up and says, here He is. Here's your Savior. Right? Your sins are many, but how did we sing it? How does the song go? Your sins are many, but His mercy is more. He's a great Savior. He's God Himself. He's come in the flesh. And I say this to you a lot, but God help you if that's small to you. God help you if that doesn't change how you live when you wake up in the morning. God help you. A Savior has come. I am has come. It makes me think of, you know, I've, I refer to it on occasion, Revelation chapter 4, you know, where the four living creatures are just looking at God. They just look at God. This is all they do. They, they were created with eyes uh, all over them and within, the text says, and they just look at God. The eternal gasp. And I, I told you the story, my seminary professor, you know, he said if you tapped one on the shoulder, would he turn around? No, he won't. He's looking at the glorified Christ. And you claim to be a Christian and you live it this big? There's, this, is, this is a contradiction, beloved. This is a contradiction. It's a contradiction. So, I couldn't leave John yet. Just one more glance at Jesus Christ through the eyes of of the, the beloved disciple as he often referred to himself. So, you heard Josh read those first 18 verses. This is God. This is not a prophet. This is God. This is not a good moral teacher. This is God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. God came. This is the assertion of the Gospel of John. God came. You and I needed for Him to come, uh, to come and He did. And you, you, heard, you heard Josh read the text. Verse 3. He's the Creator. He's not only the, 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 the... you know He's not just the Redeemer. He's also the Creator. You heard the text. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. I love the way Paul says it in Philippians 2.7. Creator God has been made in the likeness of men. This is the assertion of biblical Christianity. God came. I am came. And again, you... This can't be small in your life if you actually say you believe it. It can't be small. It can't be mundane. It can't be business as usual. Yeah, I'm a Christian. What does that mean? 
this is God in a manger, what does that mean? You know, I always have to share my favorite Christmas quote with you. It's the one I share uh, in my one and only Christmas sermon. I, I've tried to write other ones I can't. Um, Charles Spurgeon's great uh, quote. I love, this is so succinct. Jesus Christ, eternal yet born, infinite yet infant, almighty yet suckled, upholding a universe yet lying in a manger. <laughs> okay? <laughs> okay? Yeah, that's, that's breathtaking. So if it's a fairy tale, it doesn't matter. If it's a myth, a fable, a legend, it doesn't matter. But if it's true, it matters more than anything possibly ever could. Okay? And you need to understand that. This is not religion. Christian, biblical Christianity is not like the rest of the world religions. It's not men just showing up to do things to make themselves look righteous. Biblical Christianity is, doesn't have anything to do with that. We know Him and we love Him and we follow Him. John chapter 10, I'll get there in a minute. Jesus says, this is what my sheep do. My sheep do this. They know me, they love me, they follow me. John 10, 27, we'll get there in a minute. That's always Christianity. It's always Christianity. Beloved, it can't be small. And if it's true, if what John says is true, then everybody on the planet is caught up in this. Whether you ever profess to love Him or not, you'll stand before Him. He's your Creator. You are His intellectual property. And He will judge you according to your deeds. Revelation. This is what God has said. You can ignore it if you want. Exercise your will. But this is what God has said in His Word. And we know what God's aim is, right? I know it took me a year, a couple of years to get through the, the Gospel of John, but I mean, you know, I, I took some, some you know, eddies and some detours. Uh, I looked back, it was in 17 when we started uh, to go through the Gospel, so it's been a while. But I've told you several times through this process got what God is aiming at in the Gospel. He's aiming at you and me. You know the famous verse, John 20, 31. John says, I've written these things that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. This is what God is aiming at in the Gospel of John. That you might have life. Now, you can say no. You can say, I don't want, a, I don't want God-sized life. I just want this puny little boring life I have right now. You know, career and family and, and saving up, hoarding up money for a good retirement. And, you know, maybe some, you know, good Netflix or some good social media. That would be great. Listen, I've told you this before. I'm going to be 64 in a couple of months. Dude, maybe loves it, loves it when I tell you how old I am. And I think I was pretty much bored around 18. I was already bored. God saves me. God saved me at 28. 
And I praise God for saving me at 28. Because there just wasn't much left to get me jazzed. If you're honest with yourself and you've lived any number of years, you know there's nothing in this world that will satisfy your soul. Nothing. It's not to say that we don't have blessings and good things. We do. Praise the Lord. He's good and gracious and benevolent. But they'll not fill your soul. Only He can do that. So in the first chapter of John, and I'm just going to sprint through the book, okay? Don't try to follow me. Maybe just listen. First chapter of John, Jesus begins to issue invitations. John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And He says these two beautiful things. The same thing He's saying to you and me, right? What does He say? What are those words He says to His disciples? Anybody remember? Anybody remember those two words? God, pa- pardon me? Follow me! God's saying that to you! <laughs> God's saying to you, follow me! Is that not the best invitation you ever got? Is it not? God says to you, a sinner like me, follow me, walk with me, know me, commune with me, love me forever, and I'll fill your soul. I'll fill your soul for a billion eternities. I'll blow your heart up every day forever. This is God. This is what only He can do. Last week we saw it, right? In John 21, Jesus comes to each of us with essentially one question and one command. Who knows what they are? What was the question last week He asked Peter? Do you love me? He's asking each one of you that question right now. Do you love me? And what was the command? Again, back to what Elaine said, follow me. If you love me, follow me. And it, it's not just, oh, I go to church sometimes. That's, that's not following Christ. That's playing religion. And there'll be millions of people in hell who've played a lot of Christian religion. Okay? They loved Him with their lips, but their heart was far from Him, and God is not interested in that. God has never been interested in that. Just read the whole Bible. Just be... When He was dealing with the Jewish nation, He wasn't interested in that. He never has been interested in that. You remember, yeah, it's one of my life verses, John 14:15. The beginning there of John 14, he says, "If you love me, you'll keep my commandments." <clears throat> and what's that promise there in, in verse 15? "If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will what? Does anybody remember? I will disclose myself to you." This is the, to me, this is the most awesome promise I have ever heard. God says, I will continue to give Myself to you as you love Me in obedience. I will just continue to pour who I am and what I've done into your heart, into your soul, into your mind, into your plans, into your anticipation. I hate dumbed-down Christianity. I hate it! I hate it! It's an oxymoron, right? It's an oxymoron! Andrew hates it, don't you, buddy? He hates it too. A thinking person would hate it if they've read the Gospel of John. 
They would know it's blasphemy. It's a stench in the nostrils of God. They would know it. If we've read and understood the Gospel of John, you heard it. John 10.10 Jesus said, I came that you might live a timid, lukewarm, uh, compromising, uh, rationalizing little life. Isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus said, I've come that you can just, you know, go to church. And feel good about yourself. That's why I came. No, I came to give you abundant life. So I'll ask you right here, do you have it? If you don't have it, I don't think you've met Him. If you can't quantify what the abundant life is, if it's not real and vibrant in your life, if you can't see it, if no one else can feel it, it's probably non-existent. Jesus says, I came to give you real life. And it will be as different. Listen, the born-again Christian is as different as Lazarus in the tomb and Lazarus coming out of the tomb. Yeah, there's a couple of reasons why John 11 is in the Bible, okay? Yeah, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But this is what it looks like not to be a Christian. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. And this is what it looks like to be one. I'm up and I'm walking around and I'm making much of Jesus. Okay? (laughs) Yeah. That's quite a dichotomy. Jesus says, I'm offering you eternal life. I love how Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, that as lovers and followers of Christ, we, listen to this, we may be able to comprehend the breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ being filled up to all the fullness of God. I mean, hey, I could meditate on that for, I don't know, probably decades. What is, how do you even fathom what this means? The breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ. Being filled up to all the fullness of God. God means to fill you up to all the fullness of God. Don't play religion with Him. Give yourself away to Him. This is what John is calling us to do. Made me think of Jesus' first miracle. Who who remembers what it was? Jesus' first miracle. John chapter 2. Anybody remember? The water to wine. Now, I've actually heard people say that this was a trivial use of divine power. Well, of course, this would be a non-thinking person, obviously, who would say something like this. This is not trivial. Jesus is saying something huge to you and me when He changes water to wine. You know what He's saying? He's saying, I'm your joy and I'm here. No more dead religion. I'm here. I am your joy. He is the bridegroom and He's come for the bride. This is why He does His first miracle at a wedding. The bridegroom is here and He's here to sweep you know, the bride's uh, feet out from under her. He's here to just, you know, what's the word I want? Scoop her up! Right? He's here to scoop her up. You know, Hollywood, Hollywood's just stealing almost every romantic movie they make. It's just Jesus Christ, right? It's just this, this beautiful, honorable, desirable, masculine man 
loving and saving and rescuing his woman. Right? Hollywood's never come up with anything new. It's just, it's the love story between Jesus Christ and his church. And the fulfillment there of that miracle when it's Zechariah 10 7. You, you, you may remember the, the, the Old Testament text talking about New Testament Christianity. He says, Their heart will be glad as if from wine, and their heart will rejoice in the Lord. Now, everyone who's born again in here gets it. We get that. God has brought us to life, it's the abundant life. It's comprehending the fullness of God. The joy and life of God has come down to men. The bridegroom is here. You may remember John chapter 3. What did Jesus say to that elitist Pharisee who came out to converse with Jesus? Anybody remember? I'm sure he came out feeling pretty proud of himself. He knew some theology and he knew the law. I'm sure he thought he could have a really good conversation with I Am. <clears throat> but it didn't last very long before I Am said to Nicodemus, what? You're nowhere! You're nowhere in your religion, man! You must be born again! You're nowhere! You're at the top of the food chain and, you know, Israel, you're at the top of the religious food chain and, man, you're proud of yourself. You're nowhere! what Jesus said to that guy. He said, Nicodemus, you need a new heart, man. Religion's not going to make it happen for you. You need a new heart. You need a heart transplant. And only God can do that. Only God takes out that heart of stone and puts in that new heart of flesh. He told that religious man what he needed. He had to go back to square one. He didn't know anything about God. Man, he had a Ph.D. in theology. He didn't know anything. He didn't know anything. He was nowhere with God. You remember John 4. I love John 4. 4. The text tells us that Jesus must pass through Samaria. You remember that? A Jew never went through Samaria on his way to Galilee from Jerusalem. A Jew never did it. There were three, three ways to go. A Jew never went. Why would Jesus need to go to Samaria? You remember. Why, right? He had a divine appointment with a woman at the well. Do you remember? He met the woman at the well. It was a divine appointment and He never misses one of those. Okay? He always goes and He gets His people. It's what He does. It's what Jesus does. And you remember how he started with her, how he evangelized her. You remember the master evangelist. You remember how he started. Does anybody remember? He said, go get your husband. Well, we know the, we know the backdrop here, right? We know the backstory. She didn't have one. In fact, she'd been with several men. Why would Jesus start with that? It's the Gospel. He's the evangelist. He's always going to start with your sin. If you've been converted, He's going to start with your sin. You must repent. You must repent. He starts with her sin. And then what does He say to her? I am the living water. She says, give me some of that water. He says, I'm the living water. I'm the living water. An amazing, just a, yeah, an amazing 
comparison, a metaphor there. It's what many false preachers and denominations don't do anymore. They don't confront they don't confront the man or woman with their sin. This is how the master evangelist always did it. He confronts Nicodemus with his religion. He confronts this woman with her immorality. Remember the rich young ruler who came and said, oh, I'll do anything for you, right? Uh, what do I need to do to inherit the inter- eternal life? And what did Jesus say to him? Go sell all that you have. He always goes to that. And if you've had a genuine encounter with Jesus Christ, you understand. He's going to be talking to you about your sin. Because if you love your sin more than you love Him, you can't go with Him. This is why He always starts with it. This is why a good gospel presentation will start with it. Do you love your sin? You can't go with Christ. You can't. I don't care how many religious ordinances you do. You can't go with Jesus. So Jesus is offering us the abundant life. I just want to share this quote with you. Henry Scrugel was a 17th century Scottish preacher. And he said, he said it like this, The soul of man has in it a raging and inextinguishable thirst. Now you know this is true. You know you're always thirsty. You know, as John Piper says, your heart is a desire factory. You're never satisfied ever. Unless you know Jesus, <laughs> you're starting to understand what it means to be satisfied. There's not enough in the cosmos. You could pour the two trillion galaxies of the cosmos into your soul. You know, the rush would last about that long. And you'd be bored again. You must have God. You must have Him because you have a raging and inextinguishable thirst in your souls. You remember John 6? Jesus fed the 5,000. I love John 6. I preach it more frequently than I do many other passages in John because it means so much to me. You know that Jesus fed 5,000 men, which probably meant there were 15,000 people there, counting women and children. Philip looked at the situation. He says, this is impossible. We, it will take too much. Wrong. Jesus Christ is God. Nothing is impossible for Him. Andrew says it's impossible. We have too little. Wrong. Jesus is God. Nothing is too small for Him to use in a mighty way. And what was the object lesson there? Each disciple walked away with what? After He fed 15,000 people with five loaves and... was How many fish? Two? Okay. Five and two. 15,000. And each disciple walked away with a basket full of leftovers. Why do you think they had the leftovers? Well, that's a lesson for you and me and them. He's more than you need. He's always more than you need. He's always more than you need. And He does whatever He wants. He's God. And He doesn't care if you like it or if the elite like it or the media like it or the politicians like it or the religious guys down in Rome. He doesn't care if they like it or not. 
He does whatever He pleases. He's God. He makes no apologies. This is one thing I love about the God of the Bible. No apologies. You can love me or not. No apologies. <laughs> right? This is who, you know, the Bible's like, this is who I am. This is what I do. So, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And you remember the multitudes, they loved the miracles, man. They loved the bread, but why did they leave him? Anybody remember? Why did they leave him? They hated his words. It always comes down to this. It always comes down to this. Men want, you know, men, it's just like the modern church, much of the modern church. Men want to use God. You know, maybe he'll bless them. That'll be great. But I don't want to hear what he has to say, and I'm certainly not going to live it out. It's just too confining. Well, you know, some people don't think very clearly. We saw this repeated all the way through the Gospel of John. When it got hard, when Jesus started talking strong truth, the false disciples would just leave. This is the subtext of the Gospel of John. Some believe most did not. Most rejected. Most rejected. God incarnate. You may remember He asked the twelve. He said, do you want to go too? And Peter said, you have the words, man. Nobody talks like you. You have the words of life. And they stayed with Him. John 8, Jesus told us what a true believer looks like. And here it is. If you abide in My Word, you're Mine. Right? If you abide in what I say, if you do the Word, James chapter whatever, 1, I think. If, you, if you're a Word-doer, you're Mine. You're Mine if you're a Word-doer. If you abide in My Word, what does it mean to abide? I looked it up. In the Greek lexicon, here's what it means. It means to sojourn in, to dwell in, to tarry in, to endure in, to last in, to keep in, to be held by, to live in. So, where did this false notion come from that I can profess to be a Christian and never obey God in the world? Where did this ever come from? I know where it came from. It came from the adversary. It came from the father of lies. It came from Satan. He wants you to believe you can be a Christian and you're on your way to heaven, but you don't ever live it. You can't, five, you can't find five minutes in your week to open the Bible and simply read, you know, and, and be in prayer. You don't have time for God. This is a false, as you know, and damning epidemic in what is called the modern church. And if you read the Gospel of John, you know that is false. You know you can't claim to be a lover of Jesus and not obey Jesus. You know that's false. If you know the Gospel of John, it's crystal clear in the Gospel of John. John 8, you remember. Love John 8. John 8, right? John 8, 58. Jesus says, before Abraham was what? I am, right? I am. 
You know, and there, there are fools out in the world who say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, <laughs> open the Bible and read it. He claimed it over and over and over and over again, and then He proved it. By coming out of the tomb, Jesus was unapologetically saying, I am God, the God who spoke two trillion galaxies into existence. I'm the God who called Abraham. I'm the God who met with Moses. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt with great powers and wonders. I'm the God who brought you into the promised land. Jesus is saying, I am, I am. I am, I am. It's crystal clear. He claims to be God. So C.S. Lewis is right. (laughs) You know, He's either God or a lunatic. You decide. What I want to say to you is a meaningful life on this side of death and all eternity rides on that decision. But you know, I don't try to bludgeon anybody into becoming a Christian. I don't try to trick anybody. I don't try to get them emotional to make an emotional decision. An emotional decision won't hold up when it gets hard. If you don't want God, you don't want God. But I'm saying to you, He's here for you. If you don't want Him, you don't want Him. Jesus never forces anybody to follow Him. Ever. I I dare you to go find a place in the Bible where He forces anyone or manipulates anyone to follow Him. Jesus just says what the truth is. And He says, you decide what you're going to do with the one life that you have been given. John 9, the man born blind. Love that chapter, right? And Jesus creates sight in a man born blind, right? Impossible except for God. He does it. And then He says, I'm the light of the world. (laughs) Okay, so far, He has said what? He says, I'm the living water, I'm the bread of life, and I'm the light of the world. Everything you need to survive, everything a human being needs to live, right? He says, I'm all of it. I'm all of it. And it's a metaphor for the spiritual life that He is offering to us. And here we are, John 10. You've got to love John 10, the good shepherd, right? He says, I'm the good shepherd, man. I'm the good shepherd. I'm I'm the good shepherd. And we saw that example uh, as we went through John of of how a first century Jewish shepherd loved his sheep and how he cared for his sheep. He went to the death to protect his sheep. Right? You remember the story of David fighting uh, the bear and the lion, right? He, He defended his sheep to the death. This is a picture of Jesus Christ. Right? He's the good shepherd. It's why I read the 23rd Psalm to open the service. He's the good shepherd. If you know Christ, the 23rd Psalm kicks in. Right? It it kicks in. (laughs) He is your shepherd. He will guard and defend and guide you safely home. And I always love, I just have to, every time I mention the 23rd Psalm, I have to mention Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of verse 6. I love this. And this is true. And you know this is true if you know Christ. Your beauty, the psalmist says, this is a paraphrase, your beauty and love chase after me every day of my life. I love that. 
That's Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Psalm 23.6. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And what else did He say there in John 10? Well, some guys are going to, you know, take my life from me. No, He says, I'm going to lay it down. He says, nobody takes it. Nobody takes my life. I'm going to lay it down because I'm here for the bride. I'm the bridegroom. I'm here for the bride. I'm going to save her. I'm going to save her. And we know from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, from joy He does this. From joy He does this. He is our warrior shepherd. And yeah, I'm, I'm to John 10, 27. When people ask me, Jim, Give me one verse that describes Christianity. I always go here. John 10.27 My sheep hear My voice. I know them and they follow Me. Verse 14 of that chapter actually says, and My own know Me. So there's this real relationship going on. The shepherd knows the sheep. The sheep knows the shepherd. They hear My voice. You ever seen the thing? You ever seen the video on YouTube where the, the, the non-shepherd person is calling the sheep and they just never look up? And then the shepherd calls them and every one of them in unison go just like this. And they look up and they, they know His voice. They know the true shepherd's voice. I love that video. John 11, we're reminded that Jesus is 100% man as well as God. We saw Him weep at Lazarus' tomb. Doesn't God know He's about to raise Him? Yes, God knows He's about to unleash divine power to raise His friend who's been in the tomb four days decomposing. Of course He knows. But this is the complexity of the God-man, right? Jesus in His humanity weeps and then He calls a dead man out of the tomb, right? And if it doesn't give you goosebumps... You're not paying attention. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me shall live even if he dies. And you get into John 13 and Jesus, it says that Jesus loved His men to the end and then He got up, He girded Himself, He poured water in a basin and He washed the, the stinking, dirty feet of His creatures. You know, we talked a little bit about this last week. You know, Jesus made breakfast. He made breakfast. God made breakfast. You know, you can't just read over this stuff, man. You've got to think deeply about it. God is washing the dirty feet of His creatures. And God makes breakfast. This, is, this gives us some insight into the Lord's big heart. And then we heard the teaching the night before the cross. And I'm just going to go through a couple of things very quickly. John 13, Jesus said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another even as I have loved you. John 14, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. You have all you need. You don't have any excuse. Don't come whine to me and say, oh, it's too hard to be a Christian. You have all you need. I can't help you. The Holy Spirit will. You have all you need. Don't blaspheme God by acting like you don't have all you need. You have all you need. He's given you all you need. And don't misunderstand. I'm here. I'm here for you at any time. But I want you to understand you have all that you need. Jesus said, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me but the Father. There aren't ten ways. There aren't five ways. There aren't two ways. There's one way. No man comes to me 
but through the Father. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit, but by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. The main point there is obviously, if you're in me, you bear fruit. If you don't bear fruit, you're not a disciple. John 15, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. That's too big to speculate on. I, that, big is, that, that verse is so huge. Jesus says, my joy will be in you, is what He says. John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you, but you are not of the world. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 16, the Spirit of truth shall come and will guide you into all truth. Jesus tells His men that He's leaving, but He's leaving them with everything they need. Right? If you're not proactive in your Christianity, it's on you. It is not on God. It is on you. He's given you the Word. He's given you communion with Himself in prayer. And He's taken up residence via the third member of the Trinity inside you. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Don't live it small. Don't live it small. Jesus is saying, I give you license to live radically and extravagantly and passionately for the purpose that you were designed for, which is to make much of Me, to glorify Me in the world. Then in John 17, let's finish up. We were in on intra-Trinitarian communication, right? And we heard these unimaginably wonderful things. In John 17, we heard that eternal life is not about being religious. It's about knowing Christ. Verse 3, believers are a loved gift from the Father to the Son. We saw it six times in John 17, ten times in John Overall, the Son earnestly intercedes for us and the Father keeps us in His name. So my security is not how good Jim is. My security is in what God has done, is doing, will do. My security is the Godhead. It's not my profession of faith. It's not my ordinance that I did. Those are not unimportant. But I'm saying my security, I don't look back and say, well, yeah, I'm secure because of my profession of faith. I look forward. I, I look at what God is doing now and what He says He will do. I'm saved, man. And God says, I'm never going to lose you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Jesus intends for us to have His joy made in us. Again, this verse 13 is too big to speculate. I, I, I can't even begin to contemplate what that means. Verse 17, uh, chapter 17 again, in some mysterious way, in a profound way, we are in communion with the Trinity. Verse 21. The redeemed are, are loved. Listen, as even, even as the Father loves the Son, we are loved. <laughs> John 17 again, we will be with Jesus where He is that we may behold and taste His glory. Verse 24. So, John reveals to us that the hour has come, that awful and wonderful hour where God is crucified for you and for me. All I can say is let the whole created order stand in stunned, speechless awe. Who is a God 
like ours. Let the whole created universe worship the created, incarnate, crucified, buried, resurrected, risen, reigning, returning God. This is the Gospel of John in 45 minutes. So, what if you're that person that we began with? What if you desperately needed a Savior? Well, here He is. <laughs> There'll be no excuses on the last day. Here He is. Here He is presented to you in all His glory. So God puts the decision in your hands. You decide. You decide. And I'll close with C.S. Lewis. And this is brilliant. As he's not always right, but he's pretty good. C.S. Lewis, he says, Once a man follows God, how could he not live forever? Once a man refuses to follow God, what can he do but wither and die? This is the Gospel of John.